this idea that we really just want to listen to each other. And that, you know, and, and, it, and it's such a weird thing to have to make a case for. Like, so our new book, like, we actually realized we need to make a big case for this. You know, like, you need to listen to each other. Like, listen, like, just don't try to problem solve. Don't try to prove you're right. Don't try to make, you know, get, you know, move things forward in the right, in the way that you think is right. But really just listen to people and let the solution kind of emerge from that connection. That's Bob Gower, and he believes we can be future-ready by design. He has extensive experience helping companies foster positive cultures and adopt new leadership approaches so they can perform at their highest level. He's worked with GE, Chanel, Ford, Travelers, and Spotify, and he's the author of the best-selling book, Agile Business, A Leader's Guide to Harnessing Complexity. Yeah, we, no. would, we would have friends call us from LA, like I need to talk to my boyfriend about this heavy topic. What were those four things again? Or, you know, uh, people would call us repeatedly and we're like, all right, we have to put this in a Google Doc. <laughs> it's really simple. And that's Alex Jameson, who believes that when you play life by your own rules, you become the happiest version of yourself. She's been interviewed by Oprah, written five best-selling books, and helps driven women kick imposter syndrome to the curb. This week, I invited this incredible power couple to join me to talk about their new book, Radical Alignment, how to have game-changing conversations that will transform your business and your life. How do you navigate change? It's a question we think about often and one that today's world expects us to be comfortable with. The challenge, however, is where do you begin and how do you develop the mindset and skill set to be successful? Welcome everyone to the Sprint to Success with Design Thinking podcast. I'm your host, Saba Kidwai. Join me each week as I share the stories and strategies from the world's leading researchers and practitioners about why they believe the answer lies in practicing design thinking. If I could recommend one book for everyone to read this summer, Radical Alignment by Bob and Alex would be the one. And here's why. We can read all the books that we want about change, from anti-racism to education reform to how we might redesign our workplaces to better allow people to work from home. However, if we don't have the tools to guide the often uncomfortable conversations that follow, that allow us to reflect on what we've learned and how we want to move forward, then a lot of times what we're left with is knowledge, but not always action. One of the greatest lessons I've learned over the past few years is that a culture of innovation really begins with a culture of empathy. And right now, nothing could be further from the truth. One of the greatest things about starting with empathy is that we create spaces where we feel safe, where we feel known, where we feel valued, where we trust the people that we're having the conversations with so that we can go about doing the innovative things it is that we want to do. However, this is definitely easier said than done. And so we all need like a very concrete place to start. And so this week I invited Bob and Alex onto the show to talk about their new book, Radical Alignment, how to have game-changing conversations that will transform your business and life and share with us that one concrete step we can use to get started and why this is so critical to our success. It was a thrill to start getting your messages and, you know, to hear that someone is like in love with and really using the stuff that we write about is wonderful. Um, you know, I've been a coach and an author for about 20 years now. This is my fifth book. Um, and it's our first co-written book. I started in health and wellness, teaching detoxes and vegan cleanses. My, my, first marriage was really documented in our, our co-created movie, Super Size Me, that came out in 2004. Um, and over the years, I've, you know, I've done coaching mainly for women, um, you know, helping them really rise to their best self, their best energy. And now it's really focused on creative leadership. So women in design, women in tech, and you know, the, the reason the transition happened was I, I kept seeing over and over again that it wasn't just here's what you need to eat 
but here's all the stresses in our lives that make it so hard for us to figure out how to nourish ourselves, put ourselves first. And so I feel like this, this book that we're talking about today is really a culmination of so many of those important factors. Yeah, amazing. Uh, and I started off my career, well, I've had a few careers, but let's say the most recent career, <laughs> I started off as a designer and a design manager. I was actually a design director for the San Francisco Examiner in the Bay Area for a long time. And then also during the dot-com boom, like every other person who could, you know, put pixel to page, I became a, 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 an, you know, a web designer. Uh, and I was very, very interested in UX, the early days of UX, even before it was called UX. But what I kept finding in my career is I kept getting promoted up to the point where I wasn't doing the work anymore, but I was managing the work and it wasn't a skill set that I had. And it was a skill set that I felt it was, it was very disconcerting and it actually happened on a few occasions. Um, and eventually I went back to school to get an MBA focused on sustainability, which is really looking at the triple bottom line, sort of the environmental, the social and the financial performance. And, um, and I became really, really interested in sort of this idea of, because I was a designer also, the, the idea of like form following function and function following form and which comes first. And so when I, when I started looking at the environmental and social performance of businesses, I became very interested in the management culture. And I started realizing that a lot of businesses that were purporting to do really good things in the world were treating their employees really horribly. Um, this is in the nonprofit space and the for-profit space. And then also, um, you know, I don't know. I just sort of really felt like it was very hard for a company to turn itself around in terms of caring about its customer, caring about the environment without also caring about the people internally. And I became, became very, very interested in the management philosophy. I got into agile software development and this idea of small empowered teams making the biggest difference. And so that's really, you know, kind of the arc of my career. And then for the past, what, 10 years, I've been a consultant in that space. We all know that collaboration is often critical to success. It's sort of highlighted as one of the most important skills that today's workplaces and really just in our role as global citizens is needed. Simon Sinek also reminds us of this when he says, alone is hard, together is better. But just how can we be better together? It doesn't just happen from a logistical perspective by getting together around a table or today a Zoom call. It happens when we're able to create, like Bob and Alex say, a culture of radical alignment. And so I think that's one of the power pieces in our collaborations is when these questions start to bubble up, there's that vulnerability where we're like, we, we don't know. Like, can you, can you, can you, can you help me with that? And I think that is crucial too for us to be vulnerable and know we don't have all the answers, but together we do. That's a learning experience designer at Design39. Two years ago, I began researching Design 39, which is a public TK to grade eight school in San Diego, California, whose mission is to create life-ready thought leaders who elevate humanity. I found that to be so beautiful, and for years I've been fascinated by how they empower their teachers. And I dug in a little bit deeper and had the opportunity to through this research study. And so as I learned about their knowledge and motivation to integrate design thinking into the curriculum and how their organizational culture supports them, I found that the foundation for their success lay in their culture of collaboration. It's what allowed them to be innovative and really challenge the traditional practices. This is where the tools and research that Bob and Alex talk about in their book became instrumental in me being able to see how others could begin to replicate this culture as well. So I asked Bob and Alex to share, how can organizations empower teams to work better together? And how can they create the safe spaces we need where collaboration and conversations can thrive? Yeah, well, I think all of this stuff is intertwined. And what's interesting to me is um, I actually have this talk that I give from at times called Faster, Better, Happier. Um, and because I, I started realizing that like when people call me, it's usually a combination of, you know, at least two of if not all three of those things, right, that they that they need to do, you know, they, they want to do, a, they want to be efficient, right? You, so you want to try to get as maximum throughput, you know, minimum cycle time, just kind of get the work through. Um, you also want to build really good products that people love. And there's a connection to culture. And I think what we're seeing and what we've seen in, the, in sort of the, the software space, certainly, and kind of the modern product space, 
is that what you need is you need people who bring their full self to work because they, you know, IDEO has been doing this for years. IDEO who, you know, did the first mouse for Apple years ago, right? That they have these integrated teams with people with a variety of professional skills and, and personal background, everything from an artist and philosopher to an engineer working on a product. And, uh, and I think, you know, the call for diversity in the last, you know, 10 years or so that we've seen sort of ramping up has been a, a call for a different kind of, a different sort of set of perspectives being at the table. And we've seen problems with, you know, people, for instance, designing, um, you know, motion detectors that only work on white hands, right? You know, and you're like, well, maybe we should have somebody with a different perspective on that team and we could get a different outcome for the product. But the challenges I think you're highlighting really, really specifically, which is where I do most of my work, which is you can't just put people together into a room and expect them to work well together. And it gets even worse when people are non-homogenous, either in terms of background, in terms of identity, or in terms of skill set, in terms of perspective. I mean, an artist and engineer are going to argue forever. I'm, I'm working on a project right now with a psychotherapist friend of mine who does brain imaging work. And we just, I mean, basically all we do is argue. You know, like that's the design process is we argue every Friday afternoon for about two hours. And, and I think, but I think the, the, the real power of that is that when you do argue, when you have ideas bump into each other, new ideas get born. But to have that, you need to be able to argue safely. And so we have, you know, I think on campus, we've seen a lot of stuff around the safe space movement, and we've seen a lot of criticism of that movement. I don't know enough about it to have an opinion except to say that I, I agree with the aim. I agree. The aim is that you want people to be able to share and share their full selves. And that some people don't you know, like when you're the only in the room, when you're the only one of something in the room, you can feel more constrained. And so, you know, like, and so I've become very, very, I've actually had the a real blessing for the last six months, my primary project has been for an institution primarily run by women of color. And so like, I'm the only white guy in the room. I'm the only white guy in the institution sometimes. There are other white men that are employed there, but often, you know, they're in different roles. Like I'm the only person in the leadership team meeting who wears my identity. My business partner happens to be a black woman. And it's just this amazing, amazing like opportunity to realize like how we, who we are changes the space that we're in. And I think the opportunity in this book, I'm sorry for this very long winded answer, but I think the opportunity of this book, what I really care about is that we need to both become more empathic as well as create situations where the people around us are welcome to share their honesty and their truth. And in that way, I think we get the most, the richest interaction. And that's a really, really delicate line to walk. Like it's just not an easy thing to do. It's not what most of us are trained to do. And by most of us, I mean, middle-aged white men who are raised in middle-class environments. Like we're just like, oh, the world's for us. The world's designed for us and uh, you should just be, be more like us and everything will be okay. And that's not really, that's not where we're going. I don't think that, I don't think that's what leads to the best outcomes or the best problem solving and the best products. One of the gaps that Bob and Alex noticed in their work with organizations was that the structures and tools for effective collaboration, essentially being able to have meaningful and deep conversations, was missing. The learning experience designers at Design39 also shared that this was a gap that they noticed as they were starting their work. They found that they had to create norms and structures and values that would guide their work. One of the important ones they talked about was when, when they started a project, they used to discuss what success and failure looked like and meant to them, giving each of them a much deeper shared understanding of each other's fears and motivations. The framework created by Bob and Alex is one of the most powerful tools I've seen for building trust amongst teams to deepen collaboration. In their book releasing on August 11th, although you can download the first chapter for free now and place a pre-order, they share how they use it in different scenarios. They include scripts as well to guide your conversation. But before we go into the framework, I asked Bob and Alex to share why they and how they've seen this work be so successful. Well, I wanna preface how the framework works and what it is with why it works. And as you're speaking about safe spaces and the idea of bring your full self to work, well, there were a lot of unseen issues keeping people from bringing their full self to work or being able to participate fully in a way where they felt safe to share their truth without being penalized for it. 
And one of the things we talk about in this method that we're going to share is we actually create, like we create equal time for each person to share. And in Bob's work and in his research, as we were writing the book, you know, that is one of the key points. We actually set a timer when we use this and we use this method in our marriage and in our business planning all the time, but it really is equal time for each person and not, and something we also stole from the 12 step world, which is no crosstalk, right? We're not here to argue points. This is a container to listen fully to each other because everybody gets two minutes and you're not like arguing about what the last person says. You're just now sharing your perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really about, and we mentioned in it's funny. I know you've read the old version of the book and there's a new version of the book and I'm trying to remember what was in what, you know, like, cause I'm, I'm so steeped in it right now. But one of the things we talk about definitely in the new version of the book is uh, the work of a guy named Chris Voss, who was a hostage negotiator for the FBI for a long time. And so, and one of the things that he talks about is that is that you need to develop tactical empathy. And I love that framing because I think it, it I think it speaks to a certain kind, like it's a, it's a bridge concept for old school leaders who want to become new school leaders right so like so so empathy is now positioned so basically what boss says is that empathy is not about approval of someone else's position but it's a deep understanding of that other person's position and so and what you're doing and i'm going to kind of paraphrase here but like what you're doing is you're developing the richest informational landscape to work from meaning i know as much about i know more and you know the more data i have essentially about you, your motivations, what you want, who you are, what you care about, the more I'm gonna be able to craft a work experience that brings out the best in you and brings out the best in me and brings out the best in us. But it doesn't mean I have to approve of everything. And so, and, and so, and I think we're so often caught up in this very defensive mode where whenever we start talking about difficult topics, you know, we're trained, and I say we're, like, I think our education system trains us, I think our legal system trains us, to immediately defend a position, immediately go after and try to prove that you're right. And somehow we have this notion that by doing that, we're going to arrive at the best outcome. And that's just not my experience, and I actually have to come across some data recently that I'm really, really fascinated about that really is saying, yeah, it doesn't actually lead to the better outcome either, you know, just from a, from a data point. I, I don't know it well enough yet to even begin talking about it, but stuff I just discovered in the past couple of days. But this idea that we really just want to listen to each other and that, you know, and, and, it, and it's such a weird thing to have to make a case for. Like, so our new book, like we actually realized we need to make a big case for this, you know, like you need to listen to each other, like listen, like just don't try to problem solve. Don't try to prove you're right. Don't try to make, you know, get, you know, move things forward in the right, in the way that you think is right, but really just listen to people and let the solution kind of emerge from that connection. One of the initial reasons I was intrigued by design thinking and what to me differentiates it from other problem solving frameworks is that it begins with empathy. In helping organizations navigate change and embrace new practices, I found that when you begin with empathy, what you think is often challenged by what you learn. And as Bob says, this doesn't necessarily mean that we have to agree with everything, but it does give us a very rich information landscape to work off of, to not only solve problems, but to ensure that we're solving the right problems. Empathy though is hard work. It's not just about doing an interview or an empathy map with the four quadrants. It's about really thinking about how we're integrating it throughout everything we do. The ICBD conversation framework provides us with the tools that we need to really give us the language to be more empathetic towards one another. In their book, Radical Alignment, Bob and Alex introduce a four-step conversation outline that we can use to begin having these conversations. I asked Bob and Alex to walk us through this framework and later share an example. So it's a very simple four-step process to have any conversation with. It's kind of an outline for how to walk through a conversation about a specific topic together. And we can demonstrate in a minute like how to use it if you like, but you each share in your own turn your intentions for why you want to do this thing you're talking about, 
your concerns and your fears, your boundaries, like what you need to show up to be your best is a way to think about boundaries. And finally, you end on dreams. Like if this were to go incredibly well for me, for you, for us, for the world, what would be true? Yeah. And I, and I, I want to preface a little bit too with just sort of how it came about. Like we, as you mentioned, it came about from an entirely different context. We actually taught like 10 years ago, like just a one or two small workshops together for couples. It was just sort of an experiment. And we needed a, we needed, we realized that people were like having a different experience. Like two people would come to the experience they'd be having and they, they'd be, they have different expectations and therefore the experience would be different and it'd be disappointing. And we're like, okay, we just need to like, let's just have a conversation we can start off the experience with. And then we were, and then so we invented this thing. And then we slowly, we, the, those workshops went away. They never really took got any traction, but then we were like going off to visit like a tense family member. We're like, Hey, let's have us, let's us have that conversation. Or we were going to a, we're both sometimes introverts, sometimes extroverts. We'd be going to like a, a cocktail party here in New York. And we'd be like, Hey, let's have that conversation. And then it was, I guess uh, our son going to school, like changing schools. Let's have that conversation. And then it was, Hey, we need to redo our finance system. Okay. Let's have that conversation. And then it was frankly, our sex life. Let's have that conversation. Yeah. And then I was doing consulting projects and I was like, well, I'm forming a consulting team to go after this kind of high tension project. And I was like, Hey, we should have this conversation. And it was sort of like, it became this tool that people just kept asking us about. And we kept teaching all the time like so we didn't start off to write the book we actually wrote the book because we were tired of people asking us what the steps of the process were <laughs> yeah we, you know. we would have friends call us from la like i need to talk to my boyfriend about this heavy topic what were those four things again or you know people would call us repeatedly and we're like all right we have to put this in a google doc <laughs> it's really simple so that we could just share it and stop explaining it yeah. and we're like it took us a few years to catch on that we were now using this everywhere in sales in team chartering in c you know yeah. in c-suite meetings yeah. with our son so it just became this really simple framework to talk about topics that can get either emotional and off topic or there's a lot on the line yeah and so you said icbd and the icbd stands for intentions concerns boundaries and dreams by the way we've rebranded it in the new book as the all-in method because we were like the benefit is that if it works because it does it can go break one of two ways one way it can break is whoa we are so far apart we shouldn't even try this thing together which is actually a really good outcome but hopefully what it does is, oh, this, we, can, we can actually both be fully invested in this thing. Now that we've heard a little bit about the framework, I asked Bob and Alex to share an example. And they decided to share one around a conversation that I imagine, given it's the height of summer, many of us are having and are likely torn between what decision to make. That conversation is, should I take a vacation during COVID-19? So we start with our intentions and I'll start with mine. You know, my intention is to get out of our apartment <laughs> and have fun and relax and rejuvenate a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think my intention for the summer is also like rejuvenation. And then I think also there's a meta intention that exists, I think in everything that we do together or everything we do that everything that we do that impacts each other, which is, that I would like our our relationship to feel stronger and more vital and more solid at the end of the summer than it does. I mean, it feels great now, but I would like to kind of continually, continuously have it feel better and better. Yeah. And I know, and I think maybe this is kind of leaping ahead a little bit, but one of the things I know is that we love each other and we love spending time together. And when we spend every minute of every day together, we get on each other's nerves a little bit. Yeah. We need a little alone time. We, we vacation separately from time to time. We, we like to have our independence. We like to have our togetherness. And I think yeah. COVID is forcing a lot of togetherness and not so much independence. So I'm leaping ahead to this next okay. step there. Well, my, yeah, so our concerns. Yeah. Concerns are, you know, I've actually been invited to go away with a friend. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm a little worried that you'll feel left out or you know, just kind of overarching COVID concerns. Like, is this safe? Should I even go? But if I don't go, will I go insane? <clears throat> and will I take that out on you inadvertently? <laughs> um, you know, other concerns are, and I know that this isn't really a thing. By the way, 
here's one of the benefits of speaking out your concerns. And we really encourage you to be very vulnerable and speak all of them, even the ones that are lurking in the back of your brain where you're like, if I say this out loud, they're going to think I'm crazy. So it actually has the effect when your fears are received in a non-judgmental way, it actually calms down that fear center, the amygdala in the brain. So one of my fears, and I, this is so crazy, but it comes up often. And every time I say it, I'm like, oh, that's not going to happen. Like, I'm afraid I'll either go and we'll get in a fight and then like end up divorced or I won't go and we'll end up fighting and we'll end up divorced. So like, I feel like I can't win with this decision. <laughs> it's like the, uh, the meta worry, which is I'm going to die alone under a bridge. Somehow <laughs> all, my all my fears end up me dying alone in a van under a bridge. It's true. Yeah. So what are your concerns? Um, I was, I would say I have, you know, those same concerns in both directions. Um, I'm also concerned, I have a meta concern too, or not a meta concern, but another concern, which is um, my family is actually asking for time. I have a niece who's getting married um, down in Philly, um, I think anyway, we're talking today, so I don't know if that's still on or not, but in August, and also my mother turns 90 down in Philly in August, and I'm concerned that like, that's going to be my vacation this summer, is like, I love my family, but it's also going to be like a a family trip, you know, like that, you know, like, because I won't necessarily risk, you know, like I'm, I'm still very concerned about this lockdown and about very concerned about this virus and, I, and very concerned about the trend lines and the way they're going. And so I'm behaving as if we're still under quarantine and under lockdown for the most part here. Like, and I think that's the reasonable way to behave given the data. But I'm also like, you know, the reasonable way to avoid internet viruses is to unplug from the internet and I want to be on the internet. So, you know, like you have to, you have to modulate risk in some way. Yeah. And so I guess one of my concerns is making sure that we modulate risk in the right way and for the right outcomes. That was a very long winded way of saying that. Yeah. So boundaries. So I actually got into, so I actually, I keep leaping ahead. So I leapt ahead into boundaries and my boundary is I want to read up. I want to like, I want to listen to Fauci <laughs> and there are a couple others. There's a doctor out of Johns Hopkins who's been, been doing an interesting podcast and a few others, but like, I want to like read up on this a little bit more on, on what the actual risks are, particularly when it comes to my mother who lives in a retirement community, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. My boundaries are, you know, in going to stay with a friend, I'm actually staying in a separate guest house. Like we wouldn't be sharing communal space. Mm -hmm. And I, like I, she had said, you can bring your own food so we won't have to share the kitchen. I think that's actually the safest thing to do. Like mm -hmm. I'm going to go stay in somebody's guest house and not really hang out. Like we'll go for walks on the beach. You sound very fancy by the way, right now. I know right? I do. Yeah. I know. <laughs> This is like a third, like a third relationship guest house I've been invited to. So, but yeah, I mean, I'm going to take a train to get there and I'll wear my mask the whole time. And yeah, I'm just like, I'm really treating my boundaries, like my, my self care and then not getting you sick or not taking anything to her like that, that really matters to me. And my mental health is also pushing me towards like, this is the right thing to do. Like yeah. it's a good idea to go get out of Brooklyn for a couple days. Yeah. So all those boundaries sound great. I don't really have any to add except I think you should, I think my boundary is that you need to go. <laughs> <laughs> good. Perfect. Because I think it's, I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's ultimately good for us. Good. You know? Yeah. So my dream, and by the way, you know, we love to keep, you've noticed that we kind of play a little jazz with this now. Like we, we, we do it so often that we're a little bit more flexible with it. And we really encourage people to use it, intentions, concerns, boundaries, dreams, very linearly um, until you start to feel very comfortable with it. Because um, now we actually, like we'll drop into it in the middle of like working in the kitchen together. Oh, by the way, you know, that boundary I had, like not a thing anymore, <laughs> or I have a new concern or, you know, what my dream, like, we'll just kind of drop into it halfway through the conversation. But for this, my dream, like the ultimate reason why I want this, if this were to go really beautifully mm -hmm. for all of us, I go away and have fun. I like get to play in the sand and collect shells, hang out with a friend 
And I come back feeling just really grateful and refilled. And I'm so excited to see you because I haven't seen you in 48 hours, which was a very new experience lately. Um, and that we just feel excited to spend time together again afterwards. Yeah. That's my dream too. That's easy. Perfect. And I clean the whole house because that's what I do when I'm alone. And I'm, oh, even I better. <laughs> I love this plan. As you were listening to them, what were some of your observations? I immediately thought, wow, not once did these two speak over one another. They were calm, they were reflective, they were respectful. I also love the point that Alex made about how when we say things out loud, they aren't as scary anymore. If you're wondering how you can go about starting this conversation with your team or your significant other or your children, I asked Bob and Alex if everyone had to be on board and what advice they would give to people interested in trying the conversation guide with others. Yeah, well, that's, a, that, that's such a great question. And I, and I think the answer is always, it depends. I've used this in some very, in some highly contentious situations. Um, I, I, part of my work is facilitating board meetings these days. and. If you know anything, and I do it a lot in the nonprofit and for-profit space, and if you know anything about boards, you know that they are often not assembled to be teams, and yet they need to act like teams. They're assembled, you know, people are on, on boards because they bring star power or something, you know, and it's not often, you know, and they're also CEOs of their own companies or what, you know, like, it's just sort of a, a very difficult group to be with. Um, and so what I always say, and the way I always do one is that the, the way we frame the conversation, the way I ask about intentions really, really matters. And I've learned this over time. And we actually go into this in great detail in the new book, kind of scripts and, um, and sort of ways to ways to sort of modify the questions. So they land in the right way. Cause you really need them to land in the right way. And often I need to do a little bit of a precursor on the value of psychological safety, you know, like I'd like to bring a little data in, you know, like this study says you should listen to people, you know, like, <laughs> so what we're going to do is listen to each other, you know, and so just sort of like setting the framework, I think is, you know, setting the frame becomes really important in the situation where you, where people might not share. The other is what I love what you said in my experience, and I think it goes back to a previous question you had too, in my experience, people we're dying to be people with each other. Like we are like, like we really, really want to be people with each other. And we've been raised, and I think there are very good reasons for it, but if you, you know, the history of the industrial world, the history of the capitalist world, the history of, you know, a world frankly based on exploitation and slavery, we won't go into all the social justice issues that sit around this, but I think, you know, you, you can even just look at the education system. It's sort of like, be quiet, do what you're told, be quiet, do, it's this command and control. It's, it's in everything. And command and control is really based on one thing, and that's based on fear. It's based on fear, and it's based on on conformity. It's like you all have to kind of do the same thing. And just like we're really inspired by, you know, um, what was that Robin Williams movie? Oh, Captain, My Captain, the... Oh, Dead Poets Society. The Dead Poets Society, right? Where you jump on your desk and you read poetry. You know, like, we all really want to do that. Like, there's a reason that movie spoke to us, is because that's what we want to do. And so the, the trick with this method, and I think the value of this method, which I've only really discovered in the last couple of years of using it in these professional environments is intense environments, is that it, it's linear. It's like, we're just going to walk through this. Like, so I'm going to make it safe for you. So now you're going to tell me your, like, why do you do your job? You know, like, I think that's a great question. Like, why do you do what you do? Like, and who doesn't want to talk about why they do what they do, right? Like, like we all have motivations and those motivations are deeply personal they're they're there's dearly held for most of us and so it's like let's talk about that and i think as soon as you open it up just a little bit people will go further people will but you have to make it safe you know like and yeah. i think this and, and i think the linear we're going to set a timer getting the questions right and then often you know like this is why we go into um, amy edmondson's work on psychological safety and amy cuddy's work on trust why, why we talk about that so much in the, in the, well, in the new book. I can't remember if we talked about the old book, but anyway, in the new book, we talk about it a lot. It's because it essentially says it, it, it's, it makes the case for empathy being a good thing. That's why I talk about Chris Voss's work as well. Like, I'm just, I just need to make the case, and often people just need to set that, that part of their brain aside because all of their reflexes are built in this other way. And so we just, we're just trying to retrain people's reflexes a little bit. And, uh, and, and, and that's why we use this as a, the, 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 Metaphor we always use is, this is playing scales so you can play jazz later, but we're gonna play scales now. Yeah. One of the ways I like to describe it 
which, you know, maybe a, a little airy fairy for some people, but it's a very masculine process in which to have a very feminine experience. So it really does just frame things so that you can move around within one topic at a time together. And you, you asked, you know, does everyone need to sign on to this? And I've actually used the, the four steps in my mind to have high stakes and highly emotional conversations with my ex about child sharing and, you know, child support. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't know I'm walking through the four steps with him, but it's a way for me to be clear, you know, am I making sure that I hit all the important points and am I like, I get to direct the conversation a little bit, not as a manipulation, but so that I feel safe with another person because I'm, it, it's almost having, I've never thought of it this way, mm -hmm. actually. It's like a boundary for myself around an, an important topic is I need to go through my intentions, concerns, and boundaries and dreams so that I feel like I have really stated my best case. I've stood up for myself in the best way I can. One of the emerging themes from the research study at Design39 on how the learning experience designers were able to sustain motivation in integrating design thinking and transforming you know, traditional classroom practices was that they had this culture of psychological safety. Change is scary. There's no way around that. And it requires a great deal of vulnerability to say, I don't know how to do that especially when you've been a professional and you've been doing your work for decades. Trying something new for the first time is a scary thing. We've grown up thinking we have to do everything and that we have to do everything well. And in a rapidly changing world like the one we're living in today, perfection can often be a silent enemy. Being agile and nimble, failing fast and failing forward are key to adapting. Today's world requires us to adopt a growth mindset and to become more self-aware. What are our strengths? What is it that energizes us? Once we recognize that value, once we recognize our strengths and the value we bring to the table and how it can complement those around us, that is when we begin working better together. It's not about, can I do everything? In one of my favorite interviews with the learning experience designers, one of them shared, it's not about, can I do it or can't I do it? Of course, if we were had to, we would all do what was necessary. But the question we like to ask is, what am I energized by? Bob shares why this culture of psychological safety isn't just important for collaboration, but why it's important as we think about diversity in the workplace as well. First off, it's the work of Amy. Amy Edmondson is the person who coined the term team psychological safety. The idea of psychological safety existed before, but she coined the term team psychological safety. She's a Harvard researcher. She's been looking at team for, teams for like 40 years. And she actually didn't know, she didn't think her work was going to be valuable in a modern workplace, in the technology space. Um, it's kind of a fascinating story. Um, but then Charles Duhigg, who's a New York Times writer, he wrote a great piece in, what, 2016, I think it was, on um, how Google forms teams, on their Project Aristotle, which was like, how do we form a good team? I'm sorry, I'm just, I need to tell the story. I think the story is kind of illustrative of, of psychological safety. So basically, Google was like, some of our teams perform well, some of our teams don't perform so well. What's the secret sauce? Let's find the data. And they couldn't find any correlative data. They just couldn't find anything that was predictive of a good team until they started looking at sort of subtle behavioral norms. And there were two in particular. One was equal speaking time. So, you know, this is why we sort of, you know, so, you know, like, and it's kind of intuitive, right? If one person is dominating the conversation, it probably means other people don't feel safe to share. Like, you know, or it probably means, you know, we're all just like, talking about that guy behind his back, right? Um, and the other thing was something they called average social sensitivity, which is this idea that if I were to ask you how your teammate felt, and then I was to ask your teammate how they felt on a particular day, those two things would be roughly, you'd be, you would be accurate. You would be generally empathetic and, and aware of how your teammate felt. And so that led them to these, this old paper. It was a 10-year-old paper at that point of Amy Edmondson's around psychological safety that was coming out of the medical space. Um, and it turns out those two things are very, very strongly correlated or, or, or in, indicative that you have a psychologically safe space. So a psychologically safe space is really 
this is what's fascinating about it. This is what I love about it. And you touched on it. It's an individual assessment. It's me making an assessment that where I am right now is a safe place for me to take an interpersonal risk. That I'm going to say, I'm going to throw out an idea. I'm not going to edit myself because I, because you might ridicule me. You might yell at me. You might fire me, or you might just roll your eyes and ignore me, which is also like you do that enough times and I'm just going to stop doing it. And what Amy's work found was that, especially on medical teams, that when nurses and lower status people felt psychologically safe, errors went down dramatically, like by a 40% or something, you know, like something really dramatic. And that was because errors on medical teams are often either you fail to diagnose the right or fail to, fail to prescribe the right medication or the right level of medication or something like that. And just a nurse being able to speak up and say, hey, are you sure about that? Reduced errors dramatically. And, and, and so psychological safety was really the important thing. But then, so she got woken up on the morning of 2016 or whatever, and she found out that like, her paper was like blowing up. This 10-year-old paper of hers was suddenly like the hottest thing in tech. And now everybody has been chasing psychological safety for a long time. And I think, the, I think what we're going to find now is that this is going to become a key component of conversation. I think it already is, but because it is among my friends, but around diversity and inclusion efforts as well, right? That it's not just enough to like fix the pipeline issue or all that BS that people often focus on. I mean, it's not pipeline issues important and, 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 and hiring practices and blind, <clears throat> you know, resume analysis and all these things are really important and, and removing bias out of the processes in ways you can. But I think it's really important retention is really the important thing. And I think retention only comes when you create psychologically safe spaces and that, that honor difference and that allow for difference to, to be present. Anytime I'm questioning myself about whether something I'm thinking about is worthy or whether or not I should share it, I remind myself of a YouTube video I saw by Derek Sivers. Obvious to you, amazing to others. We don't always see ourselves as creative or ideas as being valuable. How many times have you wanted to share an idea and stopped thinking, mm, that's probably a silly idea? Have you ever wanted to share a thought or a comment and stopped because of what other people in the room might say? I know I have. In fact, I think I think it every single week when releasing one of these episodes. Alex shares why team psychological safety is such a crucial element for authentic and transformative collaboration. She shares the research behind how we can form great teams and why trusting yourself and sharing your voice is an incredibly important part of collaboration. You know, you asked about, you know, people feel like they, they're not creative and they come into spaces and they, they don't feel safe to participate. And then there's a voice inside them that says, well, I don't have anything to contribute anyway. In my work, I, you know, I, I run these small women's groups and they're creative leaders, they're, they're design directors, they're, they're doing all kinds of really interesting things. And what I find is, and, and this is a blanket statement about the female experience, but at some point or many points in our early, and I know this absolutely happens for men too, because we have a 13 year old boy and I'm seeing how it shows up in his life. And I know it's happened for you in your personal life. We are told that our feelings are wrong from a very young age. We're told not to trust our bodies or that our bodies are wrong. And actually the creative process starts in and comes through our physical self and involves our emotions. We are not logical creatures. We are very emotional creatures, no matter how educated or logical you think you are. You're not. I am not <laughs> emotional at all. <laughs> um, and part of intuition and creativity is trusting yourself and trusting your intuition and trusting that your voice and your ideas are valuable and worth speaking and standing up for. So actually, I use this ICBD process all of the time in these small group processes that are like that are billed as and sold as professional leadership courses that I run. But it's, a, it's the deeply personal work of professional success. And when you are able to really own your feelings and own your experiences as valid, like, yeah, how I was treated was horrible or how I'm being treated is not right, that's when you can really start to feel creative and courageous to speak up. 
Imposter syndrome is a very real thing. For me personally, I always think that maybe once I get this job or do this presentation, it will just go away. And what I've come to really realize is that it never does. Alex shares how she coaches people, women in particular, through this. And she says despite how many letters she sees people have after their name, the struggle never really goes away. She does say, however, we can become better at managing imposter syndrome and learn to use it to our advantage. I asked her how. This is probably at least 50% of my work with women leaders. And the, the, the hardest cases to crack are my PhD clients and my MDs. Like the people with the most letters after their name, the most education, have they have this deep, deep vulnerable fear that they have to say or get everything perfect either because of you know childhood socialization or because somebody's life is on the line in their work. So they're very, very careful. Um, the only way, and there's only a very, very few studies about imposter syndrome and how to address it. And the only way that has been studied is getting into groups of other women that you feel safe with and respect and hearing that they also have imposter syndrome. And you look at them, yeah, that's why I run groups because it's so effective. We hear each other, right? You're like, these incredible women, I can't believe you have imposter syndrome. And then you're like, oh, I have it too. And they can't believe I have it. And here's the trick. I don't know that it ever goes away. The only way to manage it is to consistently like, okay, I'm having imposter syndrome and I have a, like a, a personal board of directors or I have a team or I have a coach that I'm working with that I can go to repeatedly who reminds me it's just a story you were socialized or you live in this incredibly toxic culture that doesn't allow you to feel whole and worthy. So it really is about getting into groups of people that you respect and being vulnerable with. And that's the only way to manage it. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that so much. That's why I only, I don't work with jerks anymore. <laughs> I try, I, I, you know, I, I mean, I really try not to. I work with clients who, I mean, clients are always in trouble. Like they, you know, they don't, I don't get called if, if things are going well, generally speaking. And it doesn't mean that people aren't problematic, but for the most part, like I try to work with people who, who bring us a, a certain spark of joy to me and who are, who are willing, you know, who are willing to make change. Cause I, it's just too, it's too much pushing against. And, I, and I've been a process seller, seller for years, you know, like in, when I was working in agile software development, a few other things. And I'm like, yeah, the process doesn't fit. You know, it's all, it's, it's people all the way down, right? It's all, it's all people problems. But I, I love that about being in groups. One of the things that I've noticed, I think for myself in imposter syndrome is that I have to keep reminding myself is the stuff that makes me the most valuable is the stuff that find that I probably find most easiest. Like that's where my talents are. And by definition, almost, we tend to devalue something if it's that it's easy, you know? And so I just have to remind myself that, oh, that thing that's really hard. Like I do a lot of writing, and I'm really impressed with people who like dig into scientific studies. And I can't tell you, I hate reading scientific studies. So like I read, I read the, the condensed versions or I read, you know, like, or I, or I watch the Ted talk or I get, you know, like, and I, you know, and I have to try to have some rigor around it, but I just really like, that's just not the way I orient towards the world. And so I try to also stay in my lane as well and be like, okay, this is, this is who I am in the world. And that's who you are in the world. And I think, again, like when it comes to teamwork and all of that, like really, really, really embracing um, people's differences. Like I'm like my my business partner now um, who I can we have a small consulting firm together. Like she's like deeply analytic, like deeply, you know, like she's like Harvard MBA, deeply analytic, very strategy focused. And I'm like and and yet we just have this incredible like often I feel like really dumb around her, you know, like we'll be in meetings and she'll say stuff and I'll just feel so stupid. And then later, but she's also loves me, which is wonderful. So she'll say, Oh my God, that meeting, you saved it because doing that. And I'm like, well, I did what, you know, like, so yeah. So like having people around you who can reflect why you're great is, is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> the top down approach in organizations often leaves many feeling as if they can't try new ideas or that they have to seek permission. I asked Bob and Alex to share how radical alignment can shift an organization from a top-down approach to create a less rigid hierarchical structure where everyone feels that their voice and their ideas are valued. 
Yeah, so it's a beautiful question. And, and really, I think at the root of where I find myself doing most of my work these days, um, and like I say, I mentioned like I've been a process consultant. I've done large scale organizational change. I've worked with everybody from like GE and Travelers Insurance and Ford Motor Company um, and, you know, to startups, to people like Spotify and, you know, like, and I've worked in the startup space in the, in the Bay Area quite a bit as well, um, plus in a lot of nonprofit work. So the, and, and so like I've tried all sorts of different things and I often find there's a common thing when you're trying to change an organization that everybody complains about middle management because middle management is sort of like they hold the, they're the people who hold all of the, 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 the templates that the organizations run on. And in many ways, their job is to run those templates. And so they're very resistant to letting them go because then they feel, they fear they don't have value anymore. There's, it becomes sort of an existential crisis for them often. Um, we call them the organizational antibodies to change sometimes, right? Like, and it's understandable. Like, I don't want to actually demonize them because I, I, I love these people and I've worked with them a lot. But the but what I realized after a while is that what I was be, what was happening was I was being hired by leadership teams to help them with their organization's problems, and I'm going to flip a quote from a horse trainer actually on its head here. He he said that he's hired by people to help them with horse problems, but really he's helping horses with people problems. Um, this is a bad metaphor potentially, but like but I really realized like I'm helping organizations with leadership team problems. And so like, cause one really, really common thing, I know you've worked in the design thinking space that you see is that um, the weird, the weird thing about design thinking in organizations is that it's needs to be done by technology often. Like does the, they're the ones who are pushing it, you know, like, Oh, we're going to work in this new way, but product is owned by an entirely different silo in the organization. Business decisions, feature decisions are owned entirely differently. And the way capital is allocated is really combative. And so what you have is you have these two parts of the organizations battling with each other. And the only solution I've been able to find is to actually get the people at the top of that hierarchy to begin talking to each other in a new way. And so now my work is almost exclusively with leadership teams. And I either work in um, sort of sustained kind of like multi-month programs with them, or I'll just come in and do a, an offsite or a, or a board meeting, as I mentioned before, but like, and what I'm trying to do, my goal is always, I don't really care what the outcome is. I don't even care what the topic is half the time. What I'm after is getting those people to interact in a different way. I'm going to, I want to change the emotional landscape of that team because once you can begin to sort of, because, you know, we're emotional creatures. I always describe it as like the emotionality is the, is the, is the iceberg, right? It's the bottom of the iceberg, whereas the intellectuality and the skills and all of that, that's the top of the iceberg. So we always are trying to manipulate the top thing to improve team performance, but really, it's really this emotional landscape. And so, and, and I'm not even trying to move it that far sometimes. You know, like sometimes it's just as, as simple as setting a timer and getting people to listen to each other for once. Um, COVID has been actually a real benefit to this because teams have, people have gone remote suddenly and they're like, oh my God, I don't know what anybody else is doing. We better talk. And so I, one leadership team I'm working with, they suddenly started, I've been trying to get them to have a weekly meeting for months, I'd been trying to get them to just, I would say, I'll facilitate it. Just like we need to have a weekly coordination meeting. And this was a group that wasn't even talking to each other. They were having individual conversations about each other, but they weren't talking as a group. They weren't debating issues as a holistic team. And so the, the, the person at the top was just like, well, this person tells me this and this person tells me that, I don't know what to do. Anyway, COVID hits, they meet every single morning at 8 a.m., every single morning. And it's- Game changer. Complete game changer complete game changer. They don't, you know, always agree, but I don't want them to always agree, but they like each other. They collaborate. They actually figure out what the problem is that needs to be solved and they actually move forward solving it. And to me, now that is beginning to cascade out through the organization. And so now actually I have to do this later today. I'm beginning to plan how we're going to restructure the teams a little bit, but I'm doing it based on this paradigm that we've created in the leadership team to start off with. And we're going to begin to cascade that down. And I think that's the, like, to me, like that's the only thing that works. Um, I love processes. I love design thinking. I love lean startup and all that stuff, but I don't think it really, it's not a silver bullet unless you can get to the leadership team. It's not hitting the heart of it. Yeah. Like people aren't able to really share their heart in yeah. a safe way. Yeah. You know, you, you, you've been talking about education and just a small footnote testimonial from a ninth grade teacher who also got our early edition of the book. And it was one of the most glowing reviews we got. She's like, I use this process with my ninth graders and they are more engaged and they're more organized. 
And what I, my sub, what I read between the lines was that the process allows the kids to feel like they are actually part of the process and not just being dictated to. And we see that with our son who, you know, we have this conversation in various ways all the time. Actually, the woman who wrote the foreword for the book, she's the mom of five and she's an entrepreneur. And she's like, this book has changed her marriage and her family and her kids. She's like, every middle schooler needs to be taught this format to be able to communicate with each other so that you can work together. She's like, nobody taught me that. Bob shared how he saw a drastic difference in how teams were working together when they began to meet for an hour a day. This is yet another parallel that I found with the learning experience designers at Design39. Each and every morning, the learning experience designers meet for an hour to share and discuss ideas about the lessons they'll be doing that day. Meeting daily allows them to iterate, it allows them to reflect, and above all, it allows them to support one another in the new ideas that they're trying. Each and every single person interviewed at Design39 shared how when they were working at another school, they felt as if they were on an island by themselves. However, at Design39, they said the people they work with each and every day are the difference that makes a difference. As Alex highlighted, this is a strategy that can be used with children as well. We're hearing so much these days about the importance of social-emotional learning, and helping children use these kinds of tools can really allow them to put the projects and the work they're doing and the challenges they're experiencing in perspective. Bob elaborates on what Alex shared with an example of how they use this strategy at home with their son. Oh, I was just realizing like that when we're talking with our son about he's he's actually again entering ninth grade this year, but you know, and he's got his his own phone for the first time right now, and it's summertime and there's no camps, right? So like, so screens are becoming like screens rules are becoming a big thing, and I realized like we were just talking about it, and we're like, well, what's the rule? Like, you know, and then we realized that like. I, you know, I was talking, I think we, I was talking to him about it and I was like, I backed up and I was like, well, our intention is that these devices are addictive and are, you know, and that we don't want you to be addicted. You know, there's also some stuff around like brain development and all of this. And also like, you love to skate. We want you to be outside skating and not sitting at home on your device. You know, like we just want you to be balanced. So what are some rules we could put in, you know, so all of it. So rather than it being like this top down, like parents, you know, like, well, the rule is this. Because often, often we don't even think through what our intention, like, well, why do we have that rule? Like, what's that rule all about anyway? And I just realized, like, it's, it made him feel much more collaborative and it made it feel much more inclusive. Yeah, so, nice. yeah, and I, I wasn't even realizing we were using it. And it's like, there it goes, it pops <laughs> in. Yeah. No matter what your role is, this framework can help you create a culture of psychological safety that can build the trust amongst teams we need so that we can feel safe being vulnerable as we address the many challenges that are coming our way and that will continue to come our way tomorrow. Radical Alignment comes out on August 11, and I asked Bob and Alex to share the updates and additions to the book and what we can expect in the new release. You know, what the process is and how to use it. And we've gone much deeper into the ways in which we use it and actually providing scripts. So, you know, you get a whole chapter on how we use it at home in parenting, in our marriage, and then scripts of examples of, of, you know, like the conversation we demonstrated. And we just go much deeper into the research. And since putting out a self-published version, and now with a, a real live fancy publisher, we have all these other stories that we've heard from people who've actually used the process. Um, and, and I'll be honest, you know, in the last few months, we've taught it to over a thousand couples during COVID through the Creative Mornings platform. And we just, we've gotten some incredible feedback about how it helps people in their relationships and, you know, people working from home or working together who are also married like us. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of dynamics that don't get examined when you're both professional and intimate partners. So the, the new book, I think, is just a much richer and more hands-on experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the original book was designed to be very fat. Like, here's the method. Go use it. 
we also go, we, so we go deeply into how to customize it for different circumstances because that's so important. And then we also go, we also have a lot of front matter, which is really on kind of why it works. It kind of, it, not just making the case for it, but we also find like the mindset that you go into it with is so important. Um, and so, you know, we were just sort of trying to help, help people come into it with a, with a good mindset. So, and we were, and I think the use case or the, the way we were thinking about it in some ways is somebody has something that's really important and sensitive that they want to talk about. If I'm going to hand this book to somebody else who might not feel the same way and who might not have the same set of values I have around communication naturally, we want to, we want this book to be that kind of thing that brings them along, that brings those two things together and creates, you know, potential positive, a more positive outcome. Yeah. It's your turn to join the conversation by sharing what you enjoyed or what questions you still have. In a world where time and attention are so valuable, thank you for choosing to listen and for being a part of our Sprint to Success with Design Thinking community. 